Man, let us go before the Lord in prayer. Amen. Father, we come to you this morning. Thank you for the grace that is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we thank you this morning for the great love that you have bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, Lord, this world, this wicked world does not know us because it did not know him. Lord, now we are children of you, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. But Lord, we do know, we have the assurance that when Christ appears, we will be like him. That is the greatest joy and glory that we have. That Lord, when he comes... When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Lord, we thank you for the promises in your word that we will one day see Christ as he is and that we will be like him that we will see him face to face. Lord, let this hope drive all of us who are believers, that this world is not our home, that we are sojourners, that we are just passing through. Because Christ, Christ promised us that he went to prepare a place for us, that where he is, we will be there also. And Lord, let that propel us towards doing good toward our neighbor. Because Lord, we thank you for this vital truth that your spirit transforms us. We know that the transformed life is a fruit, not the cause of our salvation. Lord, you're the one who chose us and drew us. And Christ is both the author and finisher of our faith. The work of Christ is the sole ground and reason for our justification. Lord, we're not saved because of any merit or any goodness of our own, for we have none. But Lord, we likewise know that when you give us a standing by faith in Christ, that you completely transform us. If anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, New things have come. Lord, your spirit gives us new hearts. It gives us a new nature. It gives us a new mindset, a new way of thinking, a new way of viewing the world, a new way of relating to others. Lord, from the moment of our conversion, the spirit of the Lord indwells all of us. And through his living presence in our hearts, you are steadily conforming us to the image of Christ. And Lord, although we have your spirit, we will still sin until we see him face to face. But when we sin, Lord, we know that we have an advocate. We have Christ, the righteous. And we thank you, Lord, that he is pleading for us even now, seeking our welfare, seeking our good, before your throne with prayers 
that put our little prayers to shame. And Lord, your spirit likewise intercedes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Lord, what's, what's such a great privilege that we have as believers that we have Christ, our mediator, our go-between, our advocate, our attorney, going before you, pleading our righteousness before you, Father. As the world and Satan and our flesh seeks to condemn us. Lord, more and more we are conscious of our guilt and we are ashamed of our sins. Help us to bless you more and more for your steadfast love towards us. Lord, empower us more and more to serve you with faithfulness and joy. And above all, Lord, make us more like Christ. Lord, that is my prayer for our church family this morning. That is our, my prayer for all believers who hear my voice. And Lord, for those who hear this who are not believers, they too can have these privileges if they consider the fact that they're in their sins, that they're without hope in this world without Christ, and that they confess Christ as Lord and Savior, repent and turn away from a life of sin, a life of rebellion against God, and turn to Christ, bow the knee to him as Lord, and be saved, and have their sins blotted out. Lord, you are our creator and our God. You made us to worship you and to enjoy you forever. Lord, you made government to worship you. You made all the civil magistrates, our local leaders, law enforcement, our governing officials, both on the local, state, national level. Lord, you've, you've created them to worship, honor, and serve you in their duties. And Lord, they had not always been faithful in doing that. So, Lord, we pray for our president, his administration, our governor, her administration, our local mayors and county commissioners and, and city council members. Lord, that you give them hearts after you, that you call them to repentance. Those who don't believe that they legislate righteously and judiciously. Lord, that they seek the common good of all man. That they not enact laws and, and things that... Uh, Cause that rather hinder human flourishing. Lord, we pray for our first responders, our police officers, that you be with them as they go out and help to protect and serve our communities. Those who drive the ambulances out and our firemen, Lord, be with them as they're probably going out and tending to accidents, house fires, whatever the case may be, Lord. We pray that you may bless them in what they do. Our school teachers, from nurseries all the way up, Lord, they have a arduous task of, of working with children. I pray that you strengthen them, Lord, and encourage them in the work that they are doing. Those, those of us in here who work, who work hard jobs, physical, physically demanding jobs, mentally uh, demanding jobs, Lord, that you be with us who work Strengthen us. Help us to work to your glory. Help us to look to you, Lord, knowing that it is for you that we ultimately work, that we will receive our reward from you, that we don't work for man, but that we work for the Lord. 
We pray for those who aren't working, those who are retired, Lord, that they serve you in their retirement, that they're good stewards over their time as they uh, have available to them. We pray for our children, our school-age children, Lord, that you, you be with them as they go into our schools every day. They see a lot of things. They hear a lot of things. That you protect their minds. That you protect their ears. That you protect them from harm, those who wish to do them harm. And Lord, bless their parents to shepherd their hearts, to disciple them. Excuse me, to be like Christ, to be contributors to our society, to be good citizens. It's never too young to start. So Lord, bless our parents this morning. And Lord, we pray for our sister churches. Anderson Bible Church, Grace Fellowship, Christian Fellowship, Redeemer, Iron City, Mountain View. Other churches, other men, other brethren, Lord, that you be with us this morning. Help us as men to continue to proclaim the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To continue to shepherd our congregations well. To be faithful to the ministry that you have given us. Lord, we've been so blessed by your grace and mercy. We rejoice in your loving kindness and compassion towards sinners like us. Lord, though we are totally unworthy of your favor, you graciously saved us from the guilt and condemnation of our sins. Lord, we thank you for this great grace and this great mercy that you have given us. So, Lord, this morning we rely on Christ. We trust in him. We honor him. We serve him faithfully and humbly. And, Lord, as I prepare to preach this message this morning out of Galatians, concerning Paul's acceptance by the Jerusalem church. I pray, Lord, that you fill me with your spirit to preach this text well. And, Lord, send your spirit to illuminate, to make clear the truths that we hear this morning. Lord, may we be blessed, may we be refreshed, may we be encouraged, may we be convicted and even challenged by your word. But over all, Lord, may you receive glory and honor. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let us uh, turn to Galatians, the second chapter. We're in our fourth sermon in our series in the book of Galatians. For our visitors, we've been going through the book of Galatians. Uh, we're spending 14 weeks in the book, and this is our fourth uh, week, our fourth uh, Sunday in this book. And we're uh, looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And this is the word of the Lord. He says, then after 14 years, and again, this is the autobiographical section of the book that we talked about beginning with last week's sermon. So he's continuing the autobiographical section of this book, of this letter to the church. So it says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means 
I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission, not even for an hour. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter and for the, uh, for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James... Cephas, who is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desire only that we should remember the poor, that very thing which I also was eager to do. Just want to explain a couple of terms for our visitors here. You heard the word Gentiles. Uh, in historical Christianity, Gentiles are non-Jews. So anyone who was not a Jew by birth was called a Gentile. So that's where that word comes from. We're going to look at three principles this morning um, in this text. But in this passage that we have before us, Paul basically explains how he evaluated his progress as an apostle. He went up to Jerusalem and he basically laid his gospel on the table that he might measure whether or not he would run in vain during the years since he had uh, been in Jerusalem previously. So Paul's mission in this passage as we see is to receive confirmation from the apostles. Because remember, Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles. He was called out of order, as he said himself. He was called on the road to Damascus. So he was coming to defend the gospel before uh, the other disciples that had already been recognized. So our first principle is the, the, confir the confirmatory mission, Paul's mission of being confirmed. This, we find this in verses 1 through 5. We see the mission of Paul being uh, confirmed. So first Paul expressed the purpose of his mission. He says here. After 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem. With Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And he went up by revelation and communicated to them. That the gospel which I preached among Gentiles. But privately to those who were of reputation. That's by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren who were brought in, to whom we did not yield submission, not even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So Paul, his mission 
was to confirm that he was preaching the true gospel. Now, this visit to Jerusalem was Paul's second after his conversion. And, and if you look at Acts, the 11th chapter, beginning at verse 27 through uh, 12 and 25, you will see this was the same journey that Paul uh, was on. And this was the beginning of the of 14 years. So Paul says that he went up to Jerusalem on this second occasion as a result of divine revelation. It wasn't him doing this on his own. He was ordained by God to do this. So the meeting was described by Paul as secret. It was not a public meeting. It was a private meeting. In verse 2, he says, I did so in privately, but privately to those who were of reputation. So this was a private meeting. He met with Peter, James, and John. And Peter, James, and John were the three, the big three apostles. You know, they were the big three of the 12 apostles. So that's why he met with them. It's not that the other nine did not matter, but these men were the, the big three, the most, the most prominent. And this James that we see in here is the brother of our Lord. So Jesus had other siblings. He wasn't an only child. So it was during the time that James was put to death and Peter was placed in prison. If you turn to Acts, the 12th chapter, right? we're going to go back and forth between this book and Acts. So turn back to Acts, the 12th chapter. And this is during the same journey that Paul went to Jerusalem. So we do want to add some context to what we are looking at this morning. So we turn to Acts 12. First, I said that this uh, journey began in Acts 12 and 27. Acts 11 and 27. And it continues through verse 12. So we look at chapter 12 of Acts. Begin at verse 1. This is Herod Agrippa, who was the king. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. It says, now about the time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. So there was a great persecution that was taking place. The church was being persecuted. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, when you see in the Bible, with the sword, that means that, you know, with the sword. I won't say the word for the children, but when, it, when someone's killed with the sword, that means that they lost, you know, their noggins, you know, to, to use a more kinder word. So James, this same James, the brother of John, the brother of our Lord, was killed. So this is the same James that uh, Paul met with. I just want to give context to that. This was James, the brother of our Lord. So the church was in, because of the murder of James, the church was in no position to have a public meeting because there was a great persecution of the church so this is why Paul said in verse 2 that he met with them in private I want to explain why that was so why did Paul go up to Jerusalem to establish that he had not been running pointlessly as he said in verse 2 running or running in vain he laid out before them his gospel he says that he submitted that gospel to them. 
He wanted to communicate to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. So that was his reason for going there. And this shows that as believers, when we're one of the most important parts of being a believer is seeking gospel unity. The one thing that we as believers should always be united around is the gospel. The one thing that preachers and pastors should be united around is the gospel. Now, it must be a true gospel, not a false gospel. You can't unite around that which is false. Paul himself wrote in, uh, in Ephesians 4 that we should endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. But unity has to be around one common message, not a false message. You can't unite around something that is false or something that is not true. There's no true unity there. Because something that is not true divides. It doesn't bring together. So the question was, were they going to allow these false teachers to disrupt the unity of the church? That's why he went to them. Because he said in verse 4, false brethren secretly brought in. So the truth of the gospel was important because you had false preachers, false brethren who were preaching a false gospel coming into the church. The unity of the church was at stake. So that's why Paul went to Jerusalem because he wanted to make sure that he was in unity with the other apostles, that they would go out and preach the same message. That's why he went on this mission. So Paul states in verses 3 and 4 that Titus, this is the same Titus uh, whom he wrote to uh, the letter which we have in the New Testament. He states in verses 3 and 4 that Titus, who was a Gentile Christian, was not compelled to be circumcised. Because remember, the Judaizers were going around telling the Galatians that what? They had to be circumcised as an addition to being saved. And of course, you can't add to that salvation that has already been, been granted. But Paul made a point to mention that Titus, who was a Gentile, he was not a Jew, he was not compelled to be circumcised. So in Titus's case, the liberty of the gospel was at stake. Is it Christ alone that saves? Or is it Christ plus works? So Paul brought Titus along to show that it is Christ alone who saves. It is not Christ plus works or you're not saved because of your works. We're saved to do good works. We're not saved by doing good works. In that case, someone who rejects God, who denies God, who denies the existence of God, they can do good things and still be saved or still going to heaven, but that doesn't work. That's contradictory. So he brought Titus along to prove that you're saved by grace through faith. That Titus didn't need to be circumcised to be saved and accepted by God. Once you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're accepted by God. You're accepted by God because of Christ, because of the work of Christ, because of what Christ did for you on the cross. It is Christ who makes us acceptable to God, not us. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. Some people, oh man, that's mean. No, it's not. Because 
What that means, if that is true, then any single person, no matter what they do in this life, as long as they do something good, they can be acceptable by God. There has to be a standard. You won't let anybody come in your house and say, I'm your child. And claim you as their what? Parent, their mom or dad. You say, I don't know you. What standard are you using to say that you're my child? If they're, if they're not adopted or if they're not by birth, your child, then they can't claim right to be your child. They can't just burst in, into your life and insinuate themselves and say that I'm your child or a, a man walks up to a woman and says, I'm your husband. There has to be a what? Standard. An objective standard. Not subjective, not based on feelings or based on uh, cultural norms. No, there is an objective standard to being accepted by God, and that is through Jesus Christ. That is how one becomes acceptable. So Paul was showing through Titus that he had liberty in the gospel, that he did not have to be circumcised. He didn't have to, have to do anything extra to prove that he was a Christian. And Paul did not compromise on this point at all. So again, in verse 4, Paul says that his meeting was uh, prompted by the treachery of false teachers. And this occurred, verse 4, because of the false brethren secretly brought in. And what did they come to do? They came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they may bring it into bondage. So for Paul, the liberty of the free gift of justification and adoption was at the heart of the gospel and it was worth defending. The importance of the gospel was worth defending. These false brethren were coming in to cause harm, to cause division. And I will say this, false teaching always brings division. False teaching never unites because it, it creates confusion. It creates confusion. Paul said here in uh, Acts 15 and 1. Well, I'm sorry, not Paul, but Luke wrote this in Acts 15 and 1. He says, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So they had this problem at the beginning of the church. That you had these men coming in, teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised with the circumcision of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas were indignant about that. They were very angry about that. Why? Because that causes confusion. Wait, I thought I was already saved. <laughs> You're telling me I have to do this now? I have to commit this act? I have to wear these kind of clothes? You know, I was talking with someone, um, yeah, it was yesterday um, when I was down in Montgomery, my, yeah, my in-laws, about uh, the way some churches are, they, the denominations, they add on to 
you know, women have to wear dresses and can't cut their hair and uh, men can't have facial hair or can't wear, you know, you can't wear jewelry unless it's your, your, your wedding ring and all these different add-ons that they say this proves that you're saved or you, you're not saved unless you wear these kind of clothes, unless you dress this kind of way, unless you wear your hair a certain way. Or you're not saved if you don't homeschool your kids or, or, you know, you're not saved if you do all these extra things. That causes confusion because what we're doing is injecting man's standard into God's objective standard. We're adding requirements. And that was a problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were putting more burdens on their followers. They were adding to the law. They were making it hard to follow God because they were adding man's requirements. And it creates confusion. It causes confusion. And what do people do? I give up. I, I, I can't do all this. I, I, I can't follow all this. Because you're saying unless you do this, you cannot be saved. The only requirement for salvation is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your only barrier to salvation. Not all these other extra things that people say, unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. No, there's nowhere in scripture that says that. But you have people walking around these. We was in those churches for 30 to uh, uh, 20 years. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. That's adding to the gospel. And that, how do you think that makes a person feel who probably is genuinely saved? But don't quote speaking tongues according to what they think speaking in tongues is, which is nothing but a bunch of babbling anyway. But how do you think they feel those who are genuinely saved, but because they can't quote speak in tongues, they're not saved? That creates a lot of confusion in those people. And, and I've seen that happen uh, in those 20 or so years that I was in those kind of churches. It brings more grief. So Paul says these false brethren. False brethren bring in a false gospel that puts people into bondage. They think that is freedom. But nothing that is false brings freedom. Anytime you deny the truth, there's going to be bondage. Jesus told his opposers, a lot of people quote this verse out of context. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What truth was Jesus talking about? He wasn't talking about something that is like true and false. He was talking about the truth of God. It is the truth of God that brings true freedom in Christ. It is the truth of God that sets you free from the bondage of sin. Because those men who were opposing Christ, they were in bondage to sin. He was, he was uh, putting them... On one side and the devil who was the liar on the other side. He says you are of your father the devil. And he was a liar from the beginning. He is the father of lies. As opposed to being of the truth. They were in bondage to their master who was Satan. Who was a liar. And that lie brought bondage. It didn't bring freedom because it was not truth. It was not God's truth. 
It is the truth of God. It is the truth of the gospel that brings true freedom. But the devil tells a lie that no, you can live however you want to. Be free. Be you. Be your authentic self. Be free. Do whatever, do whatever you want to do. Just be free as if there are no consequences to that lie. But the gospel has something different. False teachers tell you that you can do all these things. And they come in by stealth, as Paul said. They're sneaky. They have a strategy. False teachers have a strategy. They have a strategy of insinuating themselves into the church in order to insinuate people. I'm sorry, insinuate themselves into the church in order to entice people to follow them. You think about one of the most horrific acts that happened in human history with uh, Jim Jones and the People's Temple back in the 70s. Jim Jones was a charlatan from the beginning. He was a he was a false and wicked man from the beginning. But what did he do? He went out there to the West Coast and got into a church and sneakily Sunday by Sunday year by year insinuate himself into the lives of those people at the people's temple. That was his strategy. Trickery. He used trickery to capture the minds and hearts of those well-meaning people. Those poor people took advantage of them. And he convinced them, over 900 of them, to leave their families and go out into the jungle of Guyana, South America, and form Jonestown, which ultimately led to mass murder over 900 people including babies because they drunk the Kool-Aid that was filled with cyanide he was a false teacher who came into a church and and little by little used trickery that's what false teachers do they destroy false teaching destroys that's why Paul called them what false brethren they're not they're not true they spy out the liberty that people have in Christ that they may bring them into bondage. They don't like the liberty that people have in Christ. And the false teachers are going to come in and say, oh, I don't agree with you. I don't agree with A, B, and C. They hide their beliefs in order to worm themselves in and get the confidence of God's people. And then next thing you know, boom. Next thing you know, you got people in the church believing something false because someone false comes in. We've had, you know, of the time we've been here, we've had people to come in and visitors and stuff. Uh, one guy came in all in the suit and everything and asked, can he have words afterwards? I said, no, sir, you may not. I don't know you. You just came in off the street. We've had a couple of guys to come in. And, you know, you're free to visit. But you can't just come in and just insinuate yourself like that into the church. We don't know who you are. And, and you know, leave out and some of my church members are confused. And I got to undo the damage that you caused because I failed to be vigilant and be on guard against false teachers. Paul was showing this in his confirmatory work that he was serious about preserving 
the gospel and guard it against false teachers. That integrity is important. And the thing about false teachers is they're not new. False teachers have, have existed ever since the false prophets of the Old Testament. They've always been around. And false teachers have always been in the church. The church will always be in contention with false teachers until, until the Lord comes back. But what did Paul say? He did not submit, verse 5. We did not yield submission even for an hour. Paul did not accommodate those false teachers. He refused to accommodate their message because of the integrity of the gospel was at stake. For the sake of the gospel, Paul held fast to the gospel of grace. Guess what? We must do the same thing at our church. We must hold on to the true gospel for the sake of the gospel. Don't, and I've said to y'all, I've heard me say this a million times. If you compromise in one area, the whole house is going to fall down. We cannot compromise not for one hour. The gospel, what is true. Once you start compromising on God's truth, it's, it's, it's over. It's going to be a slow decline. Look at all the apostate denominations that have departed from the faith. They started compromising on the sufficiency of scripture, that the Bible is not God's word. Then next thing you know, they start allowing all types of uh, debauchery in their congregations. Why? Because they compromise the true gospel for the false gospel. It can happen at the church level. It can happen with ourselves. If we compromise what we know to be true, to be nice to people, to not offend people, you know, to not hurt people's feelings. Guess what? You think you're compromising to save face, but you're actually making it worse. You're setting yourself up for disaster. So next we see Paul's common message. Verses 6 and 7. So Paul says here. But. From those who seem to be of something. Whatever they were. It makes me no difference. God shows. Personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something. Added nothing to me. Now some people have, have used this. As we would say in our time, Paul was throwing shade, but he was not doing that. His words could be wrongly interpreted. But what Paul was saying, he wasn't putting these disciples down. He was using basically sarcasm or irony. The Judaizers, they probably referred to the Jewish apostles as pillars of the church. Men of great reputation. And they told the Galatians that those of high reputation, the pillars of the church... The Jerusalem apostle did not agree with Paul. This is what one commentator said. So Paul uses their terminology as he refutes their claim. So the Judaizers were basically saying that these apostles didn't agree with Paul. What were they doing? Causing division. They were sowing division once again. That Peter, James, and John don't agree with Paul's gospel. That's what the Judaizers were saying. They were sowing division. So Paul was using irony when he was saying they seemed to be something because they actually were. 
So Paul used his language to emphasize that the false teachers may not hide their titles. He reminds us that no matter how highly esteemed a person is, we don't follow them if they depart from the truth. I'm going to say that again. No matter how highly regarded or highly esteemed a person is, no matter what you think of them, we don't follow them if they depart from the truth. When the blind leads the blind, they will both do what? Fall into a ditch. You follow a false teacher, you follow someone who is false, just because they're highly esteemed, they're highly loved, everybody likes them, but they're just as false as two left shoes, guess what? You're going to have the same end that they will. You don't follow them. You can, by, with God's help, lead them out. But the only thing about that is most of the time they end up leading you in. That's what happens most of the time. Oh, I can, yeah, I can talk to them and minister to them and, you know, yeah, I can, I can help bring them out there. And they're saying, no, you out. It's something about the pool of evil. Evil has a greater influence on us than we realize. People try, you have people who try to change someone else in a relationship. They end up becoming just as bad as the person they're trying to change. <laughs> okay? We can't be with people, no matter how highly esteemed they are, if they depart from the truth. So Paul states both a negative and positive that they have a common message. At the end of verse 6, he said, they contributed nothing to me. In other words, he was saying his message was not influenced or changed by them, by the apostles. He went to Jerusalem. He sat down with Peter, James, and Paul. He explained what he believed the gospel was. And they had nothing to add to his message. In other words, Paul was preaching the gospel. So that's what he meant when he said uh, uh, to be something they added nothing to him. In other words, they basically confirmed that Paul was preaching the gospel because they didn't have anything to add to what he was saying. You know how someone says something and you say, I have nothing else to add. <laughs> Sometimes they can be good or bad. So that was the negative. Then positively, he points out that they agreed that their message was the same. Look at verse 7. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. So it was the same gospel. Same gospel. There was a difference in strategy, but it was the same gospel. What was the strategy? Paul's gospel was to who? Gentiles. Who didn't know anything about the law? The Jews knew about the law because they were Jewish. So Peter's ministry was to those who already knew the law but were not believers. Paul's ministry was to those who were outsiders, who didn't know the law, who were treated as That's how Gentiles were. They were treated as heathens, infidels. Paul's ministry was to those who didn't know God, who worshiped idols, who were pagan worshipers. So don't you think their strategy would be different? So, but it was the same what? Message. But the strategy, though it's different, is still the same message. A lot of people try to change the message 
based on who they're talking to. But you can't change the gospel. To someone who doesn't believe the gospel, they need to hear the gospel. Now, you can break it down to them in, in such a way where they can understand, but they still need the gospel. They still need to know that they need to repent. You're explaining what does repent mean? Repent means to turn away. It has to change your mind, change your heart. You turn away from your sins and turn to Christ. It means to have a change of heart, a change of mind. So you explain them what repentance means. And they turn to Christ. You confess Jesus Christ as Lord and you will be saved. Don't wait for some type of special feeling to hit you. Okay, don't wait to get chill bumps down your, down your spine. You simply repent. Lord, I repent. I turn away from this life of sin and I turn to you. Lord, please save me from my sins. And guess what? God will save you. You ain't got to jump through no other hoops. You don't have to say any special words or, or repeat a prayer after me. Same strategy. But Paul, I'm sorry, same gospel. But Paul and Peter had a different strategy. So Paul and the Jerusalem apostles agreed that there was one faith, that there was one common message. And that was the acceptance that Paul had received, that they both have the same message. And so now that we have that, we have our common ministry in verses 8 through 10. You have the parentheses here for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship for the circumcised, the circumcised of the Jews also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. That is our only that we remember the poor, the very thing which we were eager to do. So what Paul was saying is the working of God is him working through them with their apostolic gifts to the church. Read the book of Acts in Paul's ministry. You will see the work of God in his life as he went through his missionary journeys. God was working effectively in him and effectively in Peter. Peter's ministry started in Acts the 10th chapter. Turn to Acts the 10th chapter right quick. We'll look at Peter's the beginning, just the beginning of his ministry. Began with Cornelius. Acts 10. And this was the call of Peter. So first of all, just giving context at the beginning, we learn about uh, a centurion basically was an officer. He had 100 men under him. You know the word century, centurion means 100. He was uh, Cornelius. He was a devout man who feared God, who gave alms, and he prayed to God. And God gave him a vision. It says, your prayers and alms have come up as a memorial before God. And basically send men to Joppa to find Peter. So verse 9, the next day, Peter went up to the house top to pray about the sixth hour, which is about noon. He came very hungry. 
He fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and a great sheet came down. Four corners. He had all kinds of four-footed animals. Verse 12. And the boy said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, No, not so, Lord, for I have uh, never eaten anything common or unclean. And the boy spoke to him and said, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Okay. And a voice, I'm sorry, this was done three times and the object was taken up. So Peter wondered within himself what the vision meant. And so the men of Cornelius that Cornelius had sent came to him to come to Cornelius' house. And so Peter came there. Verse 19, behold, three men are seeking you. Arise and go down with them, doubting nothing. So he went down to Cornelius and says, yes, I am he whom you seek. What reason have you come? Cornelius the centurion, a just man who fears God, has a good reputation among the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel. Okay? Verse 24. The following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Peter was coming in. Cornelius met him and fell down to his feet and worshipped him. And Peter said, Stand up. I am myself I'm also a man. You know, about unto me. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many who had come together. He said to them, you know that it is unlawful for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to any other nation. He was talking about Gentiles. But, and we saw Paul say this, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or uncommon. That means don't show partiality. Don't show respect to persons. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. And what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said four days ago, I was fasting. And then he, he basically recalled that in the next uh, few verses. So in verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. So guess what? The gospel was to go to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So this was the beginning of Peter's ministry. Then he goes on to give his gospel message that Christ is Lord of all, verse 36. There's to proclaim to all of Judea and Galilee, how Jesus anointed was Jesus of Nazareth. When he saw these things, he was hung on a tree. God raised him up on the third day, verse 40. He commanded us to preach to the people, verse 42, and testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judged of living and dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive what? Remission of sins. Whoever repents and believes in Jesus, their sins will be what? Wiped away. That was the gospel message. Then the Spirit of God fell upon them. And look at verse 45. Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So we see this is the effective working of God in Peter from the beginning of his ministry. This is God working effectively through him, ministering to the Gentiles. 
And we saw the effective work of God in his life. So that's what Paul, that's one instance that Paul was speaking of here in Galatians. To the circumcised. Of course, that first ministry was to the Gentile, uh, Cornelius, but there were Jews there also. And so God had placed Peter in his place and had placed Paul in his place to minister to the Gentiles. So in verse 9, Paul had demonstrated that they were committed to a common ministry, as we talked about in this principle. Verse 9 again. And when James, Peter, who was Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. These three men recognized that Paul was an apostle just like them. And what did they do? They shook hands. One commentator said this is probably the most significant handshake in the history of the human race. It's more important than world leaders shaking hands. You know, world leaders, when they meet, they shake hands. But in this, the reason why it was so significant is because the church united under one apostolic ministry. Because you had Paul over here and you had the other apostles over here. And they united together. And we see the working out of that in the book of Acts. This handshake expressed that there was one message and one ministry. Usually handshakes are what? They're like agreements. Like I agree with you. The right hand of fellowship signifies gospel agreement and gospel unity. I won't shake hands with someone who's preaching a false gospel. Because me shaking hands is doing what? It's giving affirmation to their false preaching. That right hand of fellowship, just like when people become members of our church, we get in the right hand of fellowship. We, we greet them because they have come into agreement with us to be part of our church. And we have become an agreement to them to shepherd and care for them as members of our church. That's what that right hand of fellowship is for. It is something significant about that. It is an agreement. It is gospel unity. And only those who have unity in the gospel can truly shake hands with each other and say, Praise the Lord, brother, or praise the Lord, sister, or I'm glad to meet you, brother or sister, and you shake hands with them. Why? Because you're in gospel agreement with them. So that right hand of fellowship is key. When I meet true brothers in Christ, I'm like, amen, brother, because I agree with them. So they had that agreement. They told Paul one thing to do. They desired only that he should remember the poor, the very thing which he was eager to do. Because there were so many Christians joining the church, they didn't want to neglect the poor. So Paul and the other apostles, many of those people had very little money so the apostles took up collections for them, took up collections for the saints. Excuse me. And when he was talking about the poor, he was talking about the poor saints, the poor Christians. It wasn't like the government setting up a program of uh, social welfare. It was taking care of the poor saints, taking care of the widows, which is one of the duties of the church to take care of the poor within their ranks, which we do as a church. We give to those who 
have need from time to time in our church. I can't tell you how many people have called my number asking me, do y'all help with power bills? And I'll say, no, but I know someone who does. I know an organization that does. We only help our members. It's not that we don't care about other people, but our first obligation is to who? Those of us within our church. We take care of our church family first. If we have something, you know, we do things for other organizations, we give to other organizations that help the poor. But if we gave paper, one man called one time, and I, asked, I, I said, sir, I'm curious, how much is your power bill? He said $632. I said, how do you let your get like that? Because <laughs> you have to pay that bill plus pay the reconnection fee. I said, no, sir, re. I said, I know an organization that helps with power bills, but you, I don't think you could be three or four months behind. I said, we can't do that. But the point is, we help the poor but we help the poor among the saints first and foremost. Amen? So just one application that I have, a main takeaway from this message, is that gospel unity is important to gospel partnership, whether at the church level or among each other. You know, we're part of a group of churches. We're, we're not as, like, tightly connected as we used to be. We, we still consider each other as, you know, sister churches, like-minded churches, you know, Anderson Bible Church, Grace Fellowship, Redeemer, um, Christian Fellowship, you know, a couple other churches. You know, we have pastors meetings together every, you know, once a month, and we all have a common partnership. We have unity around the same gospel. If there arose within our ranks a false preacher, we would lovingly shepherd him away from that. And if they don't walk away from that, then we have to not fellowship with them. We haven't had that. But I, I've invited some some brothers who are, you know, not necessarily solid to our meetings that we've had, and they came one time and didn't come back. That's okay. But gospel unity is important to gospel partnership. That's what we see overall in this message here. That we cannot be united with people who are against the gospel or who are preaching the false gospel or who are hostile to the gospel. There's no unity there. It can't be. The gospel is the most important message to this world. And we cannot be united with those who seek to destroy it. We must always keep that in mind. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this message. We thank you for seeing the example of the Apostle Paul the unity that he sought with the church. He wasn't a renegade or a rebel, but he sought to be united with the other brethren. He defended the gospel. And Lord, that is what our call is as believers. To not promote, to not agree to a false gospel, but to promote and agree to a true gospel. Lord, give us the strength and courage to believe in and to proclaim the true gospel and to fellowship with those who have the true gospel and not be partners with those 
who are not of the truth. Lord, may you use this message to encourage believers and to bring sinners to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name I pray, amen.